This is Transistor.fm. Hey, product people. Welcome back to the show. Today, contrarian bootstrapper Ian Landsman, someone I've wanted to uh, chat with for a long time, and we had the opportunity to talk about how he built helpspot.com like 12 years ago. That's a long time in uh, in this industry. So he gives us his kind of keys to success, how he was able to do that. And he talks about his new project, thermostat.io. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you about Indie. Stories, lessons, and inspiration for, well, for people like you. If you're listening to the show, I think you'll like it a lot. It's a weekly newsletter. It has case studies with real revenue numbers, real launch stats, um, all sorts of great lessons from people who've done it before. JustinJackson.ca slash indie. Go and sign up right now and then come back and listen to this interview. Hey, boss. Hey, how's it going, dude? Good. Where... Do you live, man? Uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. Poughkeepsie? Poughkeepsie. Have you heard of it? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an hour and a half north of New York. Okay. So it, it's kind of in the commuter zone of New York City. And why, why are you in Poughkeepsie? That's just where I was born. Born, raised. Really? Whole deal. You've, yep. you've stayed your whole life in the same town. Yeah, much to my wife's chagrin and my chagrin mostly as well. Is but, is your wife from Poughkeepsie? Yep. Well, yeah, the media area. Yep. So your wife would like to go. Yeah. But, but you like to stay? No, I'd okay. like to go too. <laughs> <laughs> but like the kids are in school, and it's just like we're yeah. just you know if we had a reason we would move. Like if somebody was like bought Userscape tomorrow, I was like, all right. Like, here's millions of dollars, but we need you to live in California for two years. Like, bam, we'd be gone. Yeah. But the, like, oh, like, selling everything. I don't know. If we had the external impetus, I, I, we'd do it, I think. But yeah. on our own, it's like, oh, I don't know, pulling the kids out, leaving all their friends. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That, that does make a big difference for sure. That, yeah. And it's funny, because like, moving is the worst. Well, that's true, too. We yeah. moved a bunch and we built this house. Oh, so, we, you know, we, it's like all of our stuff. It's all exactly how we wanted things. Not that it's all perfect because now that you have more kids, it's like, oh, shit, I wish we did this thing differently or whatever. But yeah, eh, it's a lot to give up. Yeah. Yeah. Once you built, you're screwed, man. You're never moving. Yeah. Once you built the house. Everywhere else we look at, like, the places we'd want to live are even more expensive than here. And here is even pretty expensive. So it's like, you know, if we were going to go live in Nebraska or something, it's like fine. Yeah. You know, now now I'm like make three times more money basically by moving to Nebraska. Yeah. But to like oh, move to California, you're going to move to Austin or something, or you're going to move to Seattle. Like those are all places more expensive than where we live. So that's that kind of doesn't feel right either. And is that where you'd want to go? Somewhere on the West Coast? I think so. I don't know. We'd want to get, I, I'm really an East Coast kind of guy, but I think we would want that sort of change if we moved. I mean, it's a pain to have to fly to see everybody but we wouldn't want to go south of here really and yeah. north i mean massachusetts sorry i guess i'd live in massachusetts but it's not it doesn't like i don't have any special appeal to it either so yeah if we were gonna go through all the hassle i'd want to have like nice weather and 
all that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah. Okay, now explain to me, what does it mean to be an East Coast guy? I don't know. It's just a mindset. It's a, it's a <laughs> certain attitude. I, I don't know if I can describe it, but it's you know another one when you when you meet them. And like then there's some who are too much like that, and they're like jerks. But you gotta have just the right amount of because I would say I, I'm a West Coast guy. Yeah, and, I and, agree. And it's be, a lot of it has to do with uh, well, just liking the Pacific Northwest in particular, but. I think part of it is I just haven't been, spent much time on the East Coast. And so, like, flying anywhere past Mountain Standard uh, time right. zone is like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I've been to the East Coast. Uh, do you remember Future of Web Apps? Yep. Yeah, so I have went to Miami for that. Uh, going to New York for the first time this summer. I've been to the Toronto airport. I've spent right. <laughs> a couple nights in Montreal, and that's about it. Like that's it. Your West Coast. You see, you you to me strike me as like you're always smiling and you're <laughs> optimistic, right? And you're you're happy. Like if you're East Coast, like th- those are not things you wear on your sleeve. Like you uh, might be those things, but you're not open about them, right? And so that to me is a distinction. Like you just you know you got the nice hairdo, you're smiling, you're happy. You know, you got to be a little more salty if you're an East Coast kind gotcha. of Gotcha. Now, this is what I want to know about you. Uh, I'm recording, by the way, already. We're, okay. we're, we're already into this. We're live. I was just about to ask you that. I was wondering. Okay. But, um, you know, you've been doing Help Spot for yes. 12 years. Yeah. So what's the story? Is that... Like, how did you get... How did you get into this racket? Is that the first thing you built? Um like yeah, what, what, I, what's kind of the backstory in, in terms of how you even got into this in the first place? It's, it's, it's a brutal story. So it's basically, <laughs> it's like 2003, right? You got to go back in okay. time. Okay. So I'm 23 in 2003. How old are you? Okay. So, uh, what is that? 14 years ago. So I'm uh, 26. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, I wanted to do my own thing for a while. I worked at this one you would maybe call it a startup, I guess, um, little company. And that's where I learned to program. Is this in Poughkeepsie? Yeah, this is outside of, uh, yeah, another even smaller, dumpier town uh, outside of Poughkeepsie. Okay. And and, uh, They they recruited you? They're like, we need uh, a programmer or? No, no. So I was an accounting major in college. And then I uh, worked in like retail out of college and then I worked at this little startup company. This is actually before 2000. This is from like 2000 to 2002. Okay. Uh, I learned to program at this company. Just a guy took me under his wing, kind of taught me the ropes. I read a bunch of books. Uh, this was before there's Laracast and all this online video stuff. You know, yeah. all these million places to learn how to program now, right? Like there's no place to learn how to program. I just sat with the JavaScript Bible on my lap uh, learning JavaScript and stuff like that. So, Did you want to? Yeah, no, I was super into it. So accounting and programming are very, very similar uh, in their mindset in a lot of ways. Like, mm-hmm. like with accounting, you don't really need to know the answer. Um, you kind of just need to know how to apply the rules and the sort of overarching concepts. And that's kind of the same thing with programming. Like you can look up how to do anything, but you kind of have to know what's possible at all mm-hmm. and uh, those sort of things. So I think it's a very similar mindset. Yeah, and you're kind of always reconciling things in both right. 
Interesting. Okay, so yeah, uh, so you exactly. saw you saw programming. Were you a geeky kid? Like, had you been into computers before, or you were just? Oh like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I wasn't pro. I never really thought, other than um going way back now to where you get like Computer World magazine and to be like basic programs written in there, and then I type them into the computer and stuff yeah. like that. But that's as far as I ever went with it. And but no, I was into video games, building my own computers. So I I was definitely interesting. Into so you, you weren't like it. You had the opportunity to do programming when you were a kid, but you never did. Yep. And then in, in, uh, even in college, I, I I experimented with it for a minute because I took like the first, you know, CS 101 or whatever it was. And, you know, it was just like C. And I think for me, that's not like I couldn't get from this. What the hell am I going to do with this? Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I could send some stuff to the screen great but i i can't get into it you know i I can't build anything useful with this because i wasn't just wasn't all the way there and so the web right like you know as soon as on the web you can just oh two seconds i built an html page and now it's up there and then people can see it and then i could figure out some other little you know back server-side programming language and in another couple hours i'm saving stuff into a database and i'm displaying on the screen and it's like it just was so much quicker to see how you might use it and all that so yeah Kind of Interesting. Stuff. Okay, so th- this guy takes you under his wing, and he's teaching you. Did you say Java or JavaScript? Oh, this is actually Cold Fusion. Okay. Okay. Which is uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but yep. it's a language that was popular back around then. Um, and then he also got into PHP that, a little after that um, with this same sort of mentor I had, and uh, so yeah, so Cold Fusion. PHP, and then like all the ancillary, you know, CSS, HTML, yeah. early JavaScript, JavaScript before there was jQuery and Vue and React and all these things we have now, just JavaScript on its own, trying to make it all work between IE and, and Netscape Navigator. Yeah, know? yeah, totally. So, cool. The so, old days. so you're like getting it, getting into this and um, this guy took you under his wing. What happened after that? You You went and worked for another startup, you said? Yeah, no, so after I actually worked for this college um, in town, and I was like the assistant director of academic learning uh, and something else, and IT. Uh, was, I don't even remember the whole title. Now. It was a huge title. Wow. Um, but I was an assistant director. Yeah, it was fine. It was all right. But it was not uh, anything special. And I wasn't doing much programming there, but on the side, I was always programming stuff. And I mean, I built like, I don't even know. 20, 30 different apps, like halfway built them. <laughs> okay. Nothing got finished, but I started a bunch of different things. What, what was the motivation behind that? Were you just doing it because you were interested in it? Or by this point, were you thinking you wanted to be a business person? I think it was, um, I, I definitely liked the idea of running my own business. And uh, that was part of it. I, I was still like learning how to program you know, just getting better at it. So part of it was just, I want something to build that has some sort of purpose. Uh, so I was exploring ideas with that. Uh, I think it was early projects. I didn't think about the business end of them enough. And so that was part of the reason they just never got done. And cause then you kind of get halfway through it and you're like, well, how am I actually going to sell this? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So then I right, forget it. Move on to the next thing. Yeah. No. It's interesting. I didn't know about that college thing. Cause that kind of plays in like, isn't, part of help spots market with colleges and universities or is that not true no yeah like i mean help spots sold to all kinds of businesses and organizations but i would say the college market and education in general 
is one of our big big markets where yeah. we have good fit. That's so, so interesting because like a lot of times you wonder how did people get into that market and you might think, well, maybe they just chose it or whatever, but you actually had some real like raw yeah. like experiences in that market. You knew what was kind of going on there. Well, I always think about that. There, there's a couple of parts to that. One is um, the idea in – where I got the idea from for HelpSpot was that we had to use this help desk at the college and it was a mainframe application and you'd go into like a terminal emulator in your PC and have to write support tickets in this mainframe terminal. And so you know, it didn't deal with email at all. Uh, you couldn't copy paste into it. Um, you got exactly three lines to write the entire summary of what was wrong. Interesting. Um, you, you know, you had to tab between a million little fields to like yes, no them and things like that. Yeah. So, so part of me was like, you know, if this big organization is using this insane tool, that there must be other organizations that are using, you know, inferior tools, and maybe we could do kind of a browser-based thing. Um, to replace these kind of older help desk tools that were client server or mainframe terminal or things like that, that would yeah. deal with email and uh, all that kind of stuff. So, and what year is this? What year are you starting to think about, Hey, you know, maybe I could build something on the web that would replace this, this thing here. Yeah. So that was like 2003, 2004. Okay. Right there. And I really started building it probably help spots in particular. It was like 2004. I think it was towards the yeah, middle of 2004 is when I was like, this is the idea. Like I wrote up uh, like a um, kind of a pers user persona thing, just a quick like two-page Word document of who I thought would use it and how they'd use it, um, which I'm not even really big on those kind of things. And that wasn't even a thing back then. So I didn't know where I got this idea, but yeah. I just kind of just kind of did it and ran it over it with the, my wife and we talked about it and thought, okay, so you're, this you're married is at this idea. point too. You're 26, yeah. 27. Right. You're married in yep. Poughkeepsie. Right. Working for a college in Poughkeepsie. Yep. And now you're thinking about building this thing on the side. And okay. And what, what part did you go over with your wife? Sorry. Yeah. So just the whole idea, because she actually worked at me with the startup. And so she's uh, fairly technical. And so we talked and she understands the internet and how people use the internet in businesses and all that kind of stuff. So we you know, collaborated on the whole thing, really. And especially in the early days, she was heavily involved uh, with just deciding what we should do. So she thought it was a good idea. Um, so then started getting more serious about just how you build it. Uh, I didn't know. I still didn't, hadn't run like a big website on my own or anything at that point. Yeah. Um, so there was a, that was just two around 2004, right, is when Basecamp came out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, boy, should this be SaaS? You know, how did you and, hear about Basecamp? Uh, I don't know. I think just like even back then, I was you know like the business of software forums. If anybody's familiar with that, it's a thing Joel Spolsky used to run. Yeah, and that was like a f online forum where a lot of people, uh, whereas I kind of like documented the process of building HelpSpot, and it was kind of community of people, uh, just uh, who are starting software companies, kind of like what you do with your community and what now is everywhere with like Slack and yeah. a million other places. Right. But back then this was like the little hive of what we called micro ISVs, which were sort of boot, what we call now bootstrappers. Um, and what, so did ISV, what did ISV stand for? Well, cause that came from the Microsoft world. So, 
Spolsky and this other guy who ran this forum, Eric Sink, uh, who um, runs another very uh, kind of big software company, he um, called Source Gear. They they both lived in the Microsoft kind of world. Yeah. And Microsoft calls ISVs are independent software vendors. Okay. So they're basically smaller partner software companies to Microsoft, essentially. Yeah. And so this was – so they kind of coined the term of micro ISV where you're not even like a real software company, quote unquote. You're just – because for back then, this was kind of crazy. It was just – no, you're just a, one person or maybe two people. Yeah. And you're starting a software company, which, you know, this is right after the dot-com. So people were still in the mindset of you needed millions of dollars to – build software and you have to have all these people and servers and all you know all the stuff you need yeah. and that it wasn't it was just kind of the dawning of the idea that no like one person with a credit card could maybe you know build something that was realistic and usable by uh by businesses and things yeah. like that so i think this point in your life will be interesting to a lot of listeners because you know there, there's a lot of people that are, are probably in the same place you are you they've built a bunch of things on the side have never really fully executed on anything. And, you know, the keeping, and they're working a day job. So keeping, you know, having, like, what did it take to push you to actually go all the way and overcome all those obstacles and actually get something out the door? Um, And we're talking, I mean, this is 2004, 2005. So it's still pretty hard to like get a server and configure it and do all that stuff. Like, so what, what did it take? What, what was different this time that made you actually do it? Yeah, I think that's where I'm always so torn on this because you have all the different models of how you should come up with ideas and all those things. But uh, I mean, I, for me, I thought it was – I think looking back, it was good I half-built all those projects because I was getting better at the programming side of it. And it was making me think through the sort of business processes a bit and the marketing and just how, how to do these things. Um, now there's more information out there nowadays. So maybe, maybe it's less important now, but that, and there's just something about being in there that I think is useful, like in the sort of designing of the software. And I don't mean the aesthetic design, right. But just the actual UX of it and understanding that and thinking about how you actually build software and just having built a lot of it mm-hmm. is a useful thing to have done um on even if even if that stuff never shipped yeah i think that that's useful yeah which is why i'm always a little bit pessimistic on this like uh you know fake building things that don't actually exist at all and then mm-hmm. just having a page that looks like it exists yeah. and seeing if people and i know that that maybe on maybe on the marketing end that's fine like you're seeing if there's demand but i think you're you're like missing a lot of the stuff that's important for your own growth in that because if you just get if you're not ready to take it if you're not um, experienced enough in some of these more subtler things, I think you're still going to fail on the other side of that. Uh, yeah. But I don't I, know. I think there's something to that, actually. The, on one hand, I'm, I'm super on the side of like validate an idea first through <laughs> however you can figure out if right. there's actual business demand for that, um, right. for that thing. But on the other side, part of the challenge is that um, if you've never done it before and you've never seen it done and you've never been kind of in the thick of it, so you don't have any kind of domain knowledge or any skills or anything. This is the mistake I made when I opened a, a couple snowboard shops is that I thought, well, I've been snowboarding forever right. <laughs> and I've always wanted to own a shop and it seems so amazing. 
I had this really kind of romantic view of what that would look like. But until you start doing it, man, you have no idea. And, uh, yeah, so I think there's something to your what you're saying. Like on the flip side, you should have some sort of domain knowledge, whether it's you know uh, going and working for someone for a bit, like another software company, and right. doing something with them so that you have an idea. Right. <laughs> you used to have an idea of what you're doing. Like, wh- do you even want to do this? Do you have a full understanding of what this looks like? Yeah, it's really like and coming having done some help desk stuff. Uh, for HelpSpot, it was like having that background, not just having to research it, but having personal experience with it. Like if you can do something with personal experience, I think that's a huge advantage just because you're just going to be so much better at that than, you know, the, and people do do it through research. And there's a lot of software that people build that people don't directly use. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not to totally dismiss that. But I especially think for the bootstrapper, if you're just one person, if you're relying on a bunch of research on top of building the software on top of everything else, like that's it's possible, but it's harder, you know? And in terms of validation, I mean, my, this was one of the things I came up with way back then. And one of the reasons why I really liked the help desk, this is one of the really core things, kind of bring it back to that is, um, and I still believe this, that really bootstrappers and people who are not doing it with kind of VC money, if you're trying to replace your job, you should basically never be building something that you don't already know the market wants. Mm-hmm. Like there was no risk in the help desk in the sense of there were help desk organizations. There were help desk organizations buying software for their help desk. Yeah. Like there was millions and millions of them spending billions and billions of dollars. So I don't have to worry about, is this even a thing that should exist that can exist that is there a market for this like i think that when you go down that road Mm -hmm. of well here's this crazy new idea that nobody's ever done before like that you need to go get somebody else's money for that like that's where i'm like go get the vc money right like that's you're not gonna be able to do that by yourself and i mean we call label some examples of where there's exceptions but for the most part if you're trying to build something that doesn't already exist in some fashion that people are already looking for and already paying money for, yeah. I think that's a really really difficult spot for the small software company cuz you just don't have the ability to make a market and especially B2B. B2C like maybe you catch lightning in a bottle and whatever mm-hmm. it goes viral and all that kind of stuff, but B2B that doesn't really happen the kind of viral stuff and so on that level same as like as like on the consumer side so yeah i don't know like I, I like to take that out of it so that then it's just a matter of all right this is a market where people are known to have a problem and known to pay money for it and this is the basic kind of software that they always use to solve this problem yeah. now can i do it in a different way can i do it are there, is there a pricing problem i can take advantage of since i i have like no costs and maybe i can be do something there. Is there a niche that's not served well? So yeah, like 80% of help desks are all the same and all of them can use any help desk product, but 20% of them do weird shit. Yeah. And can I serve those 20% or something? So then you can start to slice and dice that stuff, Yeah. but you're not trying to come up with the idea of, is there even people with this problem? Because I think that's, that's a hard spot to be yeah. in. Yeah. Well, and on this topic, and this is something I think we've talked about before, is I think the question for a lot of people starting out now is, is it harder now um, than it was? 
Yeah. And taking into consideration that some things are definitely easier. There's more information. Right. There's Laracast. There's, there's, you know, Amazon Web Services. Everything's cheaper. Right? Everything's cheaper. But on the flip side, I mean, you you had the opportunity to kind of jump on a, a big paradigm shift, which was people were using these, um, you know, these these clients that you know, that and terminals and stuff that went to you know bigger machines elsewhere and the web was just kind of you know kind of getting its next big breath and it made sense to you know build something at that point um even like like basecamp um you know like project management software it just feels like that would be such a hard niche to get into now but back when they got into it, it was like Microsoft Project and, you know, maybe a few other ones. Right. So what's your kind of take on that? What's what's your current kind of assessment of where things are at now? Yeah, well, I mean, to, to go back to when I started and then bring it forward is like one of the things that was harder is I what I did when I started the business was I sold my car, I quit my job, and I did nothing but code for – 12 hours a day for six months yeah. because there was no frameworks. There's no PHP frameworks. There's no JavaScript frameworks. A help desk app's a pretty big, complicated thing. And so to build version one of HelpSpot today would take me like two months of eight hours a day. And instead, it took me, you know, six months of 12 hours a day and like practically killing myself to do it. So mm. um, you have these huge advantages now where, especially because you could do something on the side, like you could take six months outside your day job and work on something yeah. and get it to be reasonably good. Um, whereas that was basically impossible. Like I could, it would have taken me years to do that. So it was not like not a realistic time frame. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to try it. I'm going to quit. I'm going to take all that risk. Like if you couldn't afford to do that, it would just be impossible. Um, yeah. so now it's nice that you can, you can do more with that, but absolutely there's so much more competition. So I mean, I think the paradigm shifts are kind of interesting because if you don't have a business right now, you're always in a good spot in that way because that's one of the things you should be looking for, right? Like what's changing that you can hop on uh, because the existing business doesn't see those things nearly as well because you have all your customers that you're mm -hmm. focused on. They're asking you for stuff. They want new features. There's bugs. There's problems. All these companies of every size and software have that same issue. And that's why these startups do come up and change how things are done um, because they can ride the front of that wave a lot easier because they're just going to build their thing from day one to take advantage of mobile first or mm -hmm. what you know whatever it is versus the existing companies like even if you got more money you still have to change a lot of stuff about how you work um which is difficult and your customers don't want that change that's the other thing yeah like, in theory right now they might really want that change in reality but they're not normally going to tell you that they're going to say no 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 like we want you to do another new version that's exactly the same as the current version and keep everything as it is but fix this and add that right but they're not going to think in terms of no actually there's a whole new way to do this and that's what you should be working on um so yeah that's and always I, the opportunity and i wonder if i mean i i think the other the other question is um, if you always need to pursue something that's difficult at the time. So like, again, if you go back to the 2004, 2005, it was a lot more difficult to create a web application. Um, and now it's easier. So now maybe the bar has moved. 
Right. But there's always counterexamples, of course. Like I'm thinking about Stripe mm-hmm. as a – it's not bootstrapped, but like Stripe tackles a really complicated problem um, that's not easy. Like they have to deal with so much garbage with the banks and like, you know, yep. uh, communicating with banks using whatever system the banks are still using. And right. you know, like that's a really messy problem that's not just as simple as, you know – creating a bunch of forms and having a, you know, a basic crud app. Um, and yeah, where are you going to add value? You know, if you got to figure that out, like, can you just be on the leading edge of something? And so just existing will be enough to propel you, which I, I like that model for the bootstrapper because you don't have a lot of time and resources. So if you can catch that, whether it's in a new type of software or that's part of the theory of what we're doing with thermostat, um, which is a new tool we're building, right. Is like, there's not a lot of stuff in that space yet, but there's enough that we know it's a it's a thing that's known and a lot of companies use it, but there's not a million options. So can you do that or can you do the new paradigm or can you do the niche that's ignored and you're, you're going to be the one who focuses entirely on that niche of some group or whatever who has a special uh, case? Because definitely, you know, in general, the day of the sort of crud app that makes millions of dollars, like everybody can build a crud app you know, yeah. in an hour. And so you're not going to, you're not adding a lot of value there unless you have some kind of marketing, you know, if you have an audience, yeah. um, sometimes that's enough. Like my credit app might be the exact same thing as your credit app, but I have 10,000 people who know and like me in this space that buys this type of credit app. Well, yeah. that's going to be enough because you're, you can have a $5 million a year business with that. Um, but just because you have that audience or some marketing advantage. So there's a lot of different ways you can have an advantage, especially when you're, you're talking about our size numbers. Like if you want to get to a billion dollars, that's not going to cut it. Right. So, yeah. uh, but if you're talking about getting to a million dollars, then you don't need a huge advantage. Like you only need a little advantage and you just got to find where you have that advantage. Yeah. So. I think that's, what's interesting is that not all of these white spaces are, um, they're not all made equal. Like for sure, if you're going to build like a marketing automation tool like Drip, um, you're there's going to be a lot more sophistication in that product um, and that opportunity than you know maybe than what Ruben had to build with um, BidSketch. Right. And it, it it's almost like. Uh, uh, there's it, it seems like the only hard and fast rule is exactly what you said, which is it has to be an opportunity where you can add value, where right. someone's not being served right now and you come in and you go, I can um, really serve you guys better than the way you're being served right now. I can give you meaningful progress. Um, but that's, that is tricky, you know, like the – um, maybe tell me about thermostat because I'm not familiar with that. What kind of process did you guys go through to decide to to do that? Yeah, so uh, with that, um, so we built a couple other things. Every like two or three years, we kind of end up building another app just because I don't know, but partially because I get bored sometimes, and partially because I have so many ideas that it's like every once in a while one of them bubbles up enough to the surface to be worth worth doing. Um, but yeah, so with Thermostat, which is a new guy, it's an NPS survey tool, which if people aren't familiar with that, it's a net promoter score. It's basically a way to ask a simple 
question to your customers and generate a score and you can track that score on a daily basis just to see or weekly or monthly or quarterly or whatever you want to do um, just to kind of see how your business is doing. And I'm sure most people in the audience have gotten one of these. It's a zero to 10 survey. Uh, so, you know, rate us zero to 10. It's got a special form of the, of the question they ask, but whatever, I'm not going to get into all that. Yeah. Um, you know, basically it's a, it's a tool that what I liked about it. So I've been thinking about building this for like almost two years and because this is a, this has been out there, this concept for like 15 years, I guess, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, what it was, it was primarily an enterprise tool. And so enterprise, big, huge enterprises would use it to track the customer satisfaction in their organizations with their customers. Um, also, they would do enterprise kind of stuff. For example, they would commission a survey company to do a survey of their competitors' customers and get make NPS scores for them. So if I'm American Airlines, I can compare myself against these other airlines because I'm going to actually commission surveys of those other airlines' customers, things yeah. like that, things that you know, we're not going to do. It's a tiny, tiny company. But, um, but this is a tool that a lot of uh, enterprise companies use, and they like it, and people – bonuses are based on it and people's jobs are based on it and it's you know pretty well vetted and well ingrained entrenched how, in enterprise how did you know that um i just like came across it and then just started researching it a bit and doing that background work um and discovered that it's a thing that's you know very commonly used uh in, in big orgs okay um so then so right there i like that um, because that's like, all right, people are spending money on this thing. It seems to be effective. And there's people who say it's not as effective as the people who invented it claim, yada, yada, yada. But it's, it's generally, if you're using it in like a broad strokes, are we kind of, are we doing okay? Are we not doing okay? You know, it's, it's very solid in that. And yeah. which for me, that's what, I mean, for my own business, it's like you get down in these metrics things, right? It's like, well, we got to add a mix panel. We got to track every button click everywhere and figure out what this person, like, you know, and I've gone down every once in a while, I get down into that. And then I'm like, you know what? This is stupid. I don't ever do anything with any of this data. Yeah. Um, I just want to like kind of know if I'm going the right direction or not. Like yeah. that is as much metricing as I can handle. Yeah. And so, uh, so when I saw this, it struck me in that regard too, is cause like, okay, like I can handle doing these surveys. It's not burdensome for the customers. It gives me the kind of general outlook I'm looking for. All right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So once I saw that enterprise was using it, I started looking around more. Are there other apps? And then, so there's kind of enterprise survey tools that have it. For, you know, and they're thousands of dollars a month, all that kind of thing. And then there are, you know, there were a couple of years ago, a couple of big, um, kind of more bootstrapper-ish level. Like not, they're still pretty expensive, but you know, more in the like plan starting at ninety nine dollars you know, going up from there sort of, uh, vibe. So, yeah. but there's not a ton of them. So you can see it was starting to come down, like it's trickling down, yeah. uh, into smaller organizations. So that is pretty much the, the sort of idea from a business perspective. I was like, all right, I like that. It's like something people are willing to pay for. People are paying for it. I don't have to explain like what, why you'd want to know your customer satisfaction to anybody, um, people are out there looking cause they have no idea if their customers are happy or not. Um, yeah. so this is all problems people have. Uh, we could charge like 
a reasonable amount for it. Um, once we get like, we're doing it a little bit different than the other tools because thermostat's going to be free, but there will be paid tiers eventually um, for some kind of edge cases, but it'll be mostly free. Okay. Uh, why, have, why are you doing it free? What's the what's the yep. end game there? Yep. So the free part is uh, so you know even though we have the successful application um we still you know we don't have big piles of money lying around um to market and advertise and things like that so i'm always looking for what what's the advantage that we have there and so i like the idea of so freemium will sometimes give you an advantage if you can if your tool lends itself to being leveraged by freemium so like if you have the kind of app that when some, when a business uses it um, the people using it are all internal. Like that doesn't, the freemium doesn't really help you so much there because somebody still has to find you. And then you still have the question of how do they find you? Yeah. And that's a hard question. Um, but with the surveying, I like it because it's inherently has some virality to it because I'm a company, I'm going to send this survey to all my customers. Um, all those people are going to see it. Some subgroup of them are going to be business people and wonder, hey, I wish I knew how my customers were feeling. Yeah. And they're going to see our little badge there, right? And, you know, the power – I mean, it's nothing of this is – I'm not inventing anything here, right? Yeah. So, you know, powered by and all that stuff. So you got the powered by links. You got inherent virality because they're always sending it outside the organization to other organizations. And so then the kind of epiphany I had – so this has been on the on – the, Dock it for a couple of years now because I kept getting muddled down in the what should we price it at, um, how much is it going to cost, all that, all that pricing stuff that just can drain you like the different tiers. What should I do? Blah, blah. Yeah. And when I was like, you know what? Like, let me look at how much it's going to actually cost to run this thing. And these surveys are not complicated by their nature. And so the storage and server requirement, all that stuff is, I mean, it's cheap now anyway compared to the old days. And it's, for this, it's quite cheap because it's one row in a database. When somebody takes a survey, it's one tiny row. Yeah. Um, not even like a lot of data. It's a little bit of data in one row in a database. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, I mean, we do have some money. So if this costs a few hundred bucks a month to run or whatever, that's fine. If we have some customer support and stuff, that's fine. We have to watch. That's probably the most risky part of this is, you know, you end up with a customer support sort of um, overload or something like that. So you got to watch that, but yeah. basically it's not going to cost a lot. So, okay, let's, let's just do it free. Um, we'll put in er, early on when there's no paid option at all, there's just going to be ad in there for help spot. Cause if you're surveying your customers, well, you're probably a business and you probably do customer support. So the least, the sort of baseline scenario here is it's an engineering is marketing initiative. Yeah. And if we can cross, sell some people on paying for help spot. That's awesome. Um, and then from there, you know, we'll see how it goes. So it could just end up being that. And if we get just a few sales of help spot a month or something like that, or even one, uh, it's going to pay for itself and it'll just be what it is. Um, but I also think there's the opportunity to do things like if you want us to email the surveys to for you, like that actually costs more money then because we have to send all those emails. You're using SendGrid or whatever. Yeah. Um, we use Mailgun. And so that's going to cost us a lot more money than just the hosting. So, okay, so that's a paid plan and that's 49 bucks or 79 bucks or yeah. whatever. I, I don't know what it is yet. Uh, and so there'll be a few things like that where I think 
there'll be really big customers who are like, Hey, uh, you know, can it show us crazy report X? And so maybe crazy report X is, you know, a paid tier. Um, there'll probably be some kind of upper limit. Like you can't send a million surveys a month to it or, or so, you know, a thousand or a couple thousand or something like that a month. If you need to, if you need to get more responses than that, I mean, if you're getting more than a thousand responses a month, you have a pretty big business. Yeah. So, cause that means you sent it to 10,000 people or what, you know, 5,000 people. And, uh, and you're not sending it to every customer every month. So you probably have 20, 30,000 customers. Um, so, if, you know, again, if, if we're charging you 39 bucks or something, you're not going to, that's not, not an issue for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the idea. Like, I don't like the mark. I don't like, I like things that market themselves. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not good at doing the marketing. I don't like to do marketing. So I'm always looking for a way that something can uh, market itself to some degree, at least. Yeah. It, it, what's interesting is, in this case, you're, you were looking kind of upstream at the enterprise market and saying, this is a thing that already exists there. Right. And then you started to see it trickle down. And that's, it seems, where you got interested was you're like, okay, I'm aware of this thing, but it costs thousands of dollars a month. And now, oh, now some people are trying it. And it sounds like you're going, like, part of your approach is to even, is to go cheaper, Right. Right. Like, so you're like, I can definitely be cheaper than enterprise, but I can probably also be cheaper than this $99 a month starting point. Right. Is that, um, and it it, it was similar with HelpSpot initially, right? Like initially, uh, uh, help software was really expensive and you made it cheaper. Is that enough? Like, can you just, can you just create something that's cheaper and get a hold of them? you know, get a foothold in a market? And then what does it take after that if if that's where you start? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's always, I always view a purchase, a, a customer purchasing as like a check sheet. And they're looking around at different options and every option they're looking at, you know, they're checking items off their list. And so I like to get as many checks as I can. Um, so, you know, being less expensive is almost always a win for you. Um, I know like there's sort of this idea that like well, people don't want to buy the cheaper one, right? They're just going to buy the more expensive one just cause. And especially when people talk about businesses, they feel like that's the default. That hasn't been my experience. Yeah. Uh, that that's, you know, there are absolutely cases where that's true, but I don't, it's not enough of them. That wouldn't be enough to dissuade me from wanting to be cheaper. Like yeah. I want, I would prefer to be the less expensive option in most cases. Now you you have to be careful, right? Because I'm not going to go down to five dollars user a month because that you just can't even make a business unless you have some, you know, whatever. If I have a million person audience, then I actually can make an awesome business at five dollars a month if I can get ten percent of them to subscribe to something of mine, right? So yeah. it's very dependent. But for most people you still have to have eventually some way to make some reasonable amount of money, but all things being equal, I'd rather be less expensive. Um, and and I think that modern software, that's where people are being trained into that, right? Like, well, I don't pay for apps. Mm -hmm. Apps are free. Yeah. Uh, You know, I don't pay for my email. Email's free. Gmail gives me email or even business wise. I pay $5 a month per user at userscape for our business email and all our document management and you know, all the backup, everything to do with our business. I pay Google $5 a person a month for. So we pay them, you know, 50 bucks or like, yeah. So, you know, it's so funny. Like you almost can't fight that. I have two thoughts here. Um, one I'll get back to you, but even on that Google, 
for business thing. I was on their their beta free plan forever. Right. And I just had to upgrade now. Mm. And I think I ended up having I think I've got I don't know, five to eight paid emails I have to pay for just because I'd created so many in the right. past. It's just me. I'm a company of one. <laughs> but I've got all these email addresses. I was like, oh, I don't want to get rid of them or anything. So right. I'm just going to pay for them. So I'm paying $5 a month. So that's like, whatever, 40, 50 bucks, 60 bucks, 80 bucks. I don't know what it is. And I'm grumpy about it because I was, right. pay- I was paying right. nothing. <laughs> and now I have to pay 80 bucks a month or whatever it is. Yeah. And, but at the end of the day, I make a lot of my money based on email and sending spreadsheets and sending, you know, Google Docs. Like these are all things that help me run my business. But because it was free before and now I have to pay, I'm grumpy about it. But on the other hand, what's a good example? Um, WP Engine, I pay pay them like 150 bucks a month. And that's an important part of my business too, but I'm not nearly as grumpy about it. Yeah. And I, I think uh, what gets missed sometimes is that people have certain mindsets in certain contexts, like certain mindsets about money in certain contexts. And, um, you know, in your personal life, you might balk at paying, you know, anything over $100 a month for a subscription. That's because that's your personal context. You're like, ah, right. like anything else is too expensive. But then there's also these other contexts that have been created either by the market or whatever. And <laughs> basically it means like some people aren't willing to pay more than whatever it is, you know, five bucks per month per email address for something that they're going to use every single day <laughs> and get a ton of value out of, you know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Like, yeah, it's weird. And I mean, something like email, there's also these differences, right? Like email like borderline a commodity at this point, right? There's tons of free providers, there's tons of really cheap providers. Um, then you have other things like, hosting like there you have a lot of pain even though you can definitely get cheap hosting yeah but you know if you're running wordpress that you might be the person who has to deal with it when it goes south yeah and you've probably been that person before yeah you don't want to be that person again so that pain that you've suffered before boy that's i'm willing to pay that 100 bucks because when inevitably the hackers come or something gets messed up with a deploy or whatever like WP Engine fixes all that for me, and I don't ever have to think about it, yeah. which is what what I'm paying for there. And that's where, like, being honest about the kind of app you have. Like, with HelpSpot, we're closer to the WP Engine of that. Like, uh, you know, the help desk is so incredibly critical. All Everybody's in there. If people can't use it, uh, then they, they can't support their customers, and people are freaking the heck out over it, right? So. Yeah. They're a little less price sensitive than in other contexts. Well, I still think price is a big factor and I still want to win that check sheet item, but there's, it's a little bit more flexibility there. Yeah. But then when I was thinking about that, that continuum with like thermostat, it's like, well, I couldn't like send my MPS surveys today. Like, you know, yeah, that's important. And I need, I, I, if it goes down forever, I'm going to be upset and go to the provider or whatever. But ultimately, like if I'm looking at different options and they seem basically the same and one of them is cheaper, like I, I, there's no pain there, right? Like there's no, the differences between them, unless there's some feature I have to have, there's all that kind of stuff. But all, all things being equal, I, I don't know if that's going to be the kind of market where, hey, I'm just going to pay more just because. Like, hey, I'm just going to pay more just because this one is more, so I'm going to pay more. Yeah. Or 
you know what I mean? Like, or yeah. I'm going to position myself as ultra premium one question survey provider. Like, I don't know if, you know what I mean? Like and yeah. there, there will be somebody in that part of the market, but overall it's going to be hard to position yourself as, or harder, especially for a bootstrapper to say, we are the premium way to send this one question survey. Like yeah. I, I think it's going to be easier to say we're the least expensive way to send your one question survey and look at all this value. We're creating tremendous value for your business for little or no money. Um, and you should talk wonderful about us and so on and so forth. Yeah. Versus, you know, we're charging you an arm and a leg and we're creating value. Um, but we're also kind of easily replaceable and there isn't actually the whole organization dependent on us every day. And, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's a different kind of product. Um, yeah. so you have to like think about your products that way and where, where they are and what the market for them is. Yeah. And I think that was the second thing I wanted to talk about is I think there is a lot of folklore in this, I don't know, this industry or this community around pricing, just because we've heard stories like anecdotal stories, like, you know, like the one that everyone always says is like, you know, I went in with this price and the purchasing agent's like, no, scratch that price out and I'll pay double. Right. And those anecdotes, I think one of the dangers of that is that you really never know until you've actually tried it yourself with your product. And so even some of these kind of, um, simplistic truisms that people throw around like double your rates or right. charge more or whatever they're, they're just too blunt of uh the, the advice is too blunt to really apply right. and too general to really apply to any situation until you've tested it so yeah. for sure you know maybe you have a product and you need to double your price and test it but I've also heard from a lot of people who have tried doubling their price and it ended up being really bad for their business. And that's why I'd rather start cheaper, you know, and then experiment with hiking it up. Um, Still the very best pricing advice I've ever gotten was Eric Sink, who I mentioned before, and he ran this kind of forum. Yeah. You know, and he he has a great software company and he sold part of his software company at Microsoft at one point. It's a guy... Really, he's not kind of out there as much as he used to be. Yeah. So most like younger bootstrappers here haven't haven't heard of him. Yeah, I've never but, heard of him actually. Yeah, so he's got some books uh, from back in the day about software development and stuff. But he's a he's really great and a help spot customer, which big thumbs up there. <laughs> but uh, his his advice was. Um, that if nobody's complaining, your price isn't high enough. So that's a good kind of like just sanity check. Like I'm going to keep upping it, start mm-hmm. kind of lower and then up it until people are complaining. Yeah. And, you know, not just one person, but if you're getting a number of complaints, then you're probably too high because there's a lot of people who are complaining. If they're, they're not going to complain, right? They're going to see yeah. the price and say, I'm out of here. So just as a sort of, cause it's always hard to find that out until you wait for your sales to like drop off the cliff or <laughs> like you're yeah. trying to figure out like, can I raise it? Of course you want to raise it as much as you can without going over. Yeah. So I always thought that was a good, just sort of rule of thumb to keep in mind is have we not gotten any complaints in a long time? Mm-hmm. Then like, that's what with the, with the support on help spot. Cause it's not, it's now a SaaS app optionally, although it can be on-premise. Um, and it is subscription now, and it wasn't subscription up until like a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So before it was subscription, there was support fees you paid every year. And for that and the licenses, like that was always my rule of thumb. It's like, boy, it's been like a year since anybody like really 
was mad about our support fees. <laughs> like, yeah. we should probably up the price. And we'd up the price. And a couple of people would complain, but then it would be fine and people would pay the support and it would be great. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all, you know, it's all relative. Like even before I launched HelpSpot, I doubled the price before I launched over what I was going to put it at. So I raised the price, but it was still less than many other options. So in terms of competition, it was less, but in terms of my own scared thinking, I, I I charged more um, because I was going to be like, I was going to charge nothing basically. And I was like, boy, let me, let me, let me increase it. Cause that's like, I'm going to sell a lot of these at that nothing amount. So we, doubled it before we launched but it was still less than much of the competition not all of it but much of it yeah and i think the other thing people forget is when you're building trust and you're starting out if you're if you're going to call me up and say hey justin uh i know your wp engine bill is 150 bucks a month and i think i can do it for you know uh 49 right well, you've got my interest because I would love to save that money every month. Sure. I, I every time I see that bill, it's one of the bills that I think, man, that's that's getting up there. Right. Um, and so I, part of me is primed. I, I think the other thing is that this idea that people, even in big organizations, are never thinking about what things cost. Uh, that's a total fallacy. Yeah, you alluded to this too, total and I, I, and I've just never been in an organization that didn't care care yeah. about cost. <laughs> no, go oh, to under thousands of dollars. Uh, go spend it. No, like yeah, they still somebody still has to answer for it. Even if they have the ability to buy, they still have to answer to somebody for why they spent that money. So it, they're always worried to some degree about justifying that. Yeah, and I mean, there's certain things like today on Twitter, I asked. I said, uh, I think I spent $1,800 on domain names the past three years. Yes. And, and people were like, what, what are you, what, where are you host? Where, where, who's your registrar? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm with Hover and I know Namecheap is cheaper, but I've just, it's not enough of a price difference for me yeah. to care. It's like Hover's just always been good. Uh, I, I'm sure I could go and find domains more expensive somewhere. I'm sure there's somewhere else that's right, absolutely. But Hover's just in a sweet spot for me. They, it's it's not so expensive that I really care, and it's you know, and the experience is great. So I'm not willing to risk it to to switch. Yeah, now, and there's a high switching cost, which is the same as WP Engine. Like switching's yeah. a pain in the butt. Like these domains. Switching, moving into registrar is actually a huge pain, and it's for something that costs fifteen dollars. So the pain versus price, even though that fifteen dollars is screwing you out of five bucks over the ten dollars at name cheap, that's still a fifty percent. There's not enough money there yeah. um, for the pain of days of authorization codes and link clicking and seeing if it transferred right and updating your DNS and all the stuff that you're going to have to do, which is just not worth doing. Yeah, so. and I think the other thing people miss is that sometimes. Um, cost can be a real trigger for people, even rich CEOs. Like I, I worked for a, <laughs> I worked for a guy who like he was a CEO, and he once spent like a whole day trying to minimize our uh, our cost with this one vendor, and right. he ended up saving like thirty five bucks a month or something like that. Right. And he's got so many other things to do. Like it was <laughs> such a bad use of his time. But I think people miss out on the emotional. Yeah. Piece Nobody of likes that. a bad deal. No one likes a bad deal. And a lot of, even in big organizations, a lot of these um, people, even if they have a lot of money, are cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and so if if there is an opportunity to go in and, and say, you know, this this is a lower cost than what you're paying, 
And it, if you're going to get me to switch, you're right. There's going to be some check boxes. And one of them is, okay, <laughs> if you're brand new and you're more expensive, why would I switch? Like right, that doesn't right. make any sense in the same way that you wouldn't accept a job if they were like, hey, we'd like you to come work for us and we're going to pay you less money. You'd right. be like, well, I think you're going to have to, <laughs> like your your other items Something's on get. well, yeah, the other items on that checklist have better be pretty damn good, right? Exactly. If, if I'm going to go that way, yeah. And it's even a good, an interesting case study with the hover because you know you have to know what you're good at and what you want to do and what interests you. Like I'm not interested in having. I like the making of the software and the selling of the software. I'm not so much personally interested in like a large organization, let's say, of like a lot of people and that kind of thing. And so, so Hover, for example, so Hover charges more, but one of the things they do is that they'll move your domains for you. Like they will have a person physically do it, and they'll call the other registrar, deal with the authorization, like they'll do a lot of stuff for you. So that's a way that they could charge more and justify it, right? Like we know it's a huge pain for you mm-hmm. and we know you're unhappy with your current registrar for whatever reason. And yes, we're a little bit more, but guess what? You can just tell us to go do this and we will go do it. And you yeah. don't have to think about it again. So there you go. So, so okay. So if you're going to have like a service component or something like that, like you might be able to come up with ways to justify being more expensive. And I think that you should do that if you can do that. And if you want to do that, which is always the part everybody else always leaves out also is like, maybe you just don't want to do that. Like, yeah, it's like the other advice that's always around, like, you know, write an ebook first and then do the next thing and phase it up. That's great. Except I don't want to freaking write an ebook. Like I want to run a software company and I don't want to write an ebook. Now you could say I'm being a baby and that I need to learn those skills first by writing this ebook and blah, blah, yeah. build an audience. I get all, I know all the things, right? But ultimately, I'm going to write a shitty ebook because I don't want to do it and I'm yeah. not interested in it. So, you know, so is my time better spent a year thinking about what ebook to write, writing it, and then making $10,000 on an okay ebook launch? Mm-hmm. Or maybe in that year, I would have built out the software the way I see it, worked on coming up with the right market fit. Uh, you know, gotten on the right podcast guesting to like make some awareness, um, figured out the right hook and the right niche to approach at the right Facebook group or whatever, you know, like getting into the actual selling of the actual software I actually want to make instead of the tangential path, which has absolutely worked for some people. Um, but Mm -hmm. you know, you're not all in on that and you're not going to do a good job with it. Like that's, you're not. It's not going to work. Yeah. So. This is why I like talking to you because I, because <laughs> I, I'm definitely the guy saying start small, start with, right. I know, start with, Sorry. start with teaching, <laughs> start with, and, um, the, but on the other hand, I can completely understand that if so much of this advice is based on what you're good at or what you like to do or, you know, and so if, if, so for example, I'm, I will never be able to build software by myself. And so I don't focus on that stuff. <laughs> I, I just focus on, on the, on the other things. And, yep. um, that's, that, that's always been my way of, of kind of getting in. And um, I think it depends. So like your personality, right? You are like, bam, I can have five things going at once. I, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to finish. It, I'm going to go on to the next thing. I'm gonna, the next thing I can, I'm good at, uh, that idea of switching 
over over to something new mm-hmm. or uh, or cutting loose something that maybe didn't work or it had its run and now it's done right like so you're you cut that baby loose and you're on to the next thing you're doing yeah uh, which is not those are like all skills that lend themselves to what you're doing which is why it's working for you but if you don't have some of those skills um, then it's you know if you can't crank out something that's high quality fairly quickly and instead it takes you eight months to do this thing and you build up, you know, a thousand people in this audience and you make $10,000, but ultimately you want to build, you decide to build a software product that doesn't really perfectly match with that audience you built. Mm-hmm. That is all worthless. Like those people aren't going to help you at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. again, if it all winds up perfect, that's great. Like you, you write the book or you do a thing, video series or something and, and it perfectly matches the next phase where those people are obvious buyers for your software, then that's great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, like, I mean, even you see a lot like Brennan done there, like he has all these freelancers and he was had software for freelancers and he got rid of the software for freelancers because yeah. it didn't, couldn't sell the software to the freelancers and he's got thousands and thousands of freelancers who follow him. And so yeah. I, mean, I think it made some money. It wasn't like a total bust, but it was not worth doing. Yeah. Um, so even if you have the huge audience and that should be perfectly aligned, you know, it's still hard to make that leap. And software it takes, you know, it's quick to build the software now, but it's still years to perfect it and iterate on it and figure out all those little features you need that are the difference between somebody buying and not buying. Figure out your onboarding and make it perfect. Figure getting your documentation right, getting your support system right. Like all these things still take a long time, even though you can kind of get rolling a lot faster. Yeah. Um, it, it, it feels like there's two risks. And this is something my wife reminds me of all the time is like, on one hand, um, everyone is always going to kind of trumpet what worked for them. Right. And and the danger in that, of course, is that what worked for me is likely not going to work for you. Right. <laughs> um, there's also like varying, like, so on one hand, you know, like I'm hoping to do $200,000 in revenue this year. That's that's like my goal for my little one-person company. Yeah. And for some people, that is incredible. But for other people, that would be not, uh, right. not, not, worth, not, doing. not right. worth doing at all. <laughs> and so there's so much, but they're, they'd be willing to build a team and move to New York and all these things that right. I don't want to do. Right. Um, I, I think the other thing, though, is that um what's what and, and so this is kind of flipping it around is what's been successful for me up till now now I'm trying to give myself advice <laughs> has produced all sorts of blind spots like um you know just because so here's all, here's one thing I've noticed is every launch I do I have a better launch but right. that launch when I survey those folks with NPS by the way oh, there you uh, go um when the the most interesting thing about NPS is the the comments. So why yeah. did you choose that answer? Well, this is just let me jump into that for one second. Is that yeah. I think one of the keys to me with thermostat is that you have the NPS score and all that, but it's exactly what you said in getting that fee. So for people who don't know, after you click on number eight or whatever, you'll usually on most systems get a little box that says, "Hey, like why did you choose an eight? or it might say something else. Basically, it's an open ended feedback box. And so many companies 
will go years without really ever talking to their customer. Like they talk to them when they're making the sale, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, and in SaaS apps now, like oftentimes not even then, but usually there'll be some, at least an email or two to get set up. And then you never talk to these people ever again, like yeah. until they have some support issue or until they cancel. And so just that like repetitive, you're actively thinking about reaching out to your customers. They're writing you. These are real people writing you with actual issues um, in sort of a different context than just purely, hey, I'm canceling or there's a software bug or something. I think that is such a huge part of the value is, is having that regular interaction um, yeah. with the customers. Well, but and then, anyway. it, then you can start to notice trends. And so yeah. one of the trends I've noticed is that there's a big percentage of people buy that buy um, just because they're fans of my work. So right. it, it might be like they've been, they've been reading my stuff forever or they like my YouTube channel or they, right. and they just want to be involved in what I'm doing. Um, you know, who else has a business like this is Jeff at Ugmunk. Um, okay. I don't so know him. He's, so he's, um, he, he's a designer and he just makes really beautiful things. He has mm. a t-shirt line. Uh, he just launched a Kickstarter today for this desktop organization thing. You're going to see it for sure today, Ian. People are, okay. Lots of people are tweeting about it. Oh, wow. But he's a kind of guy – and this is actually a great point. You don't know about him because you're not a fan. But his fans basically will buy everything he puts out. He'll put out right. something <laughs> new and his fans will go. And so he's very kind of launch-centric. So that's the trend is that, right. okay, that's what's happening. But there's a huge blind spot there, which is if I'm going to build. So one of the challenges I got at MicroConf was, um, Justin, you're working way too hard. And you should really be thinking about how to work less and make more money. Right. And I, traditionally, yeah. I haven't been that motivated by money. So both of these are like big challenges for me. Like, Justin, what would it take for you to work three hours a day and to make a million dollars a year? Right. And um, these are the, the the reason these might be blind spots is I, you know, I'm just used to doing what's worked for me, right? <laughs> like here I go, here I go again, here I go again, and then um, you know, a few people are like, man, like Justin, you got sick a few times this year, and that definitely affected every time you get sick. You can't make money, basically. Right, you're, right. you're completely dependent. And one day, you know, I'm 30, I'm turning 37. Right. And already, like, you know, I'm starting to get, like, RSI in my arm sure. and, like, all creaky. this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so you start to think, man. Uh, and I got four kids that are getting into braces ages and right. uh, college age. And you know, so all of these things are blind spots, right? Yeah. And so there's the flip side of that, of, of um, you know, the, the the person, the hero that you have might have all sorts of blind spots that they're right. not communicating. So they're saying, you know, this is what to do. This is what worked for me. But at the same time, like, um, you know, maybe uh, this is unfair, but maybe Jason Freed has a really shitty marriage or right. <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, like there's all yeah, these yeah, yeah. kind of blind spots that that – we have as individuals and we also don't see other people having. There's also a related thing to this, which I think is something that you really have to work hard to stay aware of these days, which is that people who are following, you know, you or Brennan Dunn or whoever, any, any uh, personalities, right? Yeah. And 
Um, there's a temptation because I'm listening to your podcast every week and I'm watching your videos and all these kind of things to take the advice that works for your business and apply it to my business. And if my business isn't the same as your business, then that's going to be bad advice. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's so much advice out there right now on content initiatives, whether mm-hmm. it's like video or eBooks or whatever. And if you are in a software business, it sounds like that advice should work for you. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it doesn't work for you for software businesses very well. Yeah. And so there's, you always have to be a little bit careful with that too. And there's some things that are universal and you, you want to pick those things out. Right. And then there's other things that aren't universal, but feel like they are. And so you get going down that road. Uh, and then you're in a bad spot because you're doing a bunch of things that worked for an ebook, but they don't work for a SaaS app very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you know, but I'm listening to these things. These are the kind of things that are most prominent now in sort of like podcasting and uh, articles online is a lot of, you know, content oriented initiatives. Um, you know, so it's just, uh, just something I'm always trying to be aware of myself. Cause I definitely get caught up in, Oh my God, it's a great idea. And then I'll spend a week, working on it and implementing it. And then I'm like, Oh, well this actually, this doesn't work for software at all. Like yeah. I don't know why I was doing this. Um, yeah. Or so. it didn't work for your software, right? No, that's true too. Absolutely. Cause like, it might just be me. And, and, and so much, so much, so much of this comes like intercom has just doubled down on content. Like they've been mm-hmm. creating this beautiful magazine, uh, online right. magazine. And you know, they're, they're really investing a lot in it, but um, it part of it works for them because they've got obviously have people inside of the company sure. that are really excited about that. So it's a lot easier to wake up every day and write something if you like to write. Right. And if you can say, I'm going to hire 20 writers and write, make something awesome, then I'm just a guy hiring 20 writers. <laughs> you know, exactly. so that's like, that's a much easier position than uh, being the person who has to wake up and write every day. So, so <laughs> how do you, because this is all, this has always been something I've admired about you is that you're not afraid to go against the grain. Um, how do you, how do you know, like, it, how did you get to this point where you knew yourself uh, and what you're good at, what you like to do, and maybe even know your company good enough and what it's good at that you're able to say, okay, you know what, <laughs> that doesn't work for us or that wouldn't work for us. We're going to focus on this or or yeah. do, you, do you even feel like you're at that point? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you, not always, right? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think it's it's very hard. I think you have to keep experimenting. Uh, that's a big part of it um, because it's hard to experiment on the main thing that makes most of your money. Like, it's just a hard. It's hard for many reasons. It's hard because it's scary for you because you're like, boy, I might screw this up. Mm-hmm. It's hard because your customers don't want you to change it often. Yeah. Um, so, so for you, that's HelpSpot. Like, is HelpSpot still like ninety percent right. of your revenue yeah. or something? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Um, and then in the past, we we did another help desk called Snappy, which was going to be kind of a simpler help desk as compared to HelpSpot, which is more kind of enterprise e, not not really true big enterprise, but enterprise e compared to like who was coming out at that time was things like Help Scout and um, these other kind of like ten dollar a month. Yeah. Cheaper help desks. Yeah. And so I was like, well, maybe we should build something to be down at that market and something that, you know, has more scale to it. So, okay, like let's build something that's cheap and wide and all that stuff, but it didn't have enough of the attributes to make it wide on its own. Uh, It didn't have any virality to it. It was still a big, 
it's still hard to get people to switch because it's still moving your help desk. Mm-hmm. Um, those other tools were better at content than us and some of those kind of things. So it just didn't work and it failed and I ended up selling it off. But, uh, but I learned a lot from that. I was like, well, if I'm ever going to do something less expensive again, then I want to look at like some of the things we talked about earlier yeah. um, to make sure it can sustain itself. At least hopefully, I don't know if it'll work, but there's more probability there with that. Um, cost wise, like I spent way too much on snappy, how can I like snap like thermostat? I built the whole thing myself until the last two weeks or so when I've had one of our developers join um, with working with me on it. So yeah, like I'm not spending any money. Basically, we're gonna have like do a little logo, spend a few bucks on a logo and whatever. But we're keeping the whole thing under probably definitely under ten thousand. Yeah, um, and up to launch anyway, and there'll be some more costs after that. But keeping the cost really tight. Uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, things you learn and then you also learn from that. Like we with Snappy was a place where we did do a lot of testing of content marketing and other sort of things like that. And it didn't didn't work for us. Like I tried hiring somebody to do it, didn't work. I tried mm-hmm. that again more recently, again didn't work. Um, and it is partially for us. Uh partially it's who we are, partially it's like the market we're in. Obviously, if you're in a market like Help Desk Software has a ton of companies all doing super awesome content marketing. Yeah. So can I be company number 10 doing super awesome content marketing? Yeah. Like that's gonna be hard unless I have some really unique angle, which I don't. Like, yeah. I mean, startup bootstrappery thing, that's not good customers for HelpSpot because it's a bunch of one license sales not really not really moving the needle. Um, and we're kind of too expensive often for them anyway. So, okay, the bootstrapper thing doesn't really fit. You know, we're not like a, a great example is, is intercom that you brought up. So that's sort of a, a tool that saw that wave that we were talking about and mm-hmm. said, Hey, let's build a help desk. And they do other things like they're, they're like a weird amalgamation, right? But part of yeah. what they do is help desk in theory, they wouldn't even necessarily call it that. But so part of what they do is customer service and they said, Hey, let's forget about all these businesses out there that HelpSpot serves. Yeah. Basically, we're not serving anybody HelpSpot serves. We only care about SaaS apps. Yep. We don't care about schools. We don't care about banks. We don't care about hospitals. All we care about is SaaS apps. And if all we care about is SaaS apps, what does that mean? Well, that means like you can have a drop-in JavaScript that installs everything magically mm-hmm. and can have a chat box and you can automate a bunch of stuff that other tools might have to um, ask people to manually do because it's, you know, behind some firewall installed, at, you know, some hospital uh, or whatever. So they're able to do a lot of things differently than traditional support tools because they've abandoned 95% of the market and said, we're going to own this five or 10%. And that's a huge, and that's a market that's growing, right? Like software as a service and mm-hmm. websites also like we are going to own that and leave traditional IT help desk and traditional support um, systems and, and organizations, we're going to forget about them. Yeah. So yeah, like that's a thing that the decision they made, which is, uh, I'll say for now it's paying off for them. I mean, they've gotten a lot bigger. They aren't, they aren't profitable. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see how that all shakes out, uh, eventually, but I think they'll probably make it cause I think it seems like pretty well run and everything, but, um, but so, yeah, it's, so much, and so much of this really is like experimenting, trying things on, seeing if they fit for you and your circumstance yep. and everything else. And cause it, it sounds like you were able to learn 
in your case, you're like, you know what? I gave content marketing a really good run. Like we really tried that and I just didn't like it. It didn't work for us. And I think eventually you do kind of have to say, you know what? That didn't work. I'm going to try something else. And there's there's this, uh, yeah, there's this kind of level of like just knowing yourself uh, and then eventually knowing your team and then eventually knowing your product and then also all along kind of knowing the customers that that you have, you know, it, it feels yeah. like you have to be aware of all that stuff. Yep, you do. <laughs> it's hard. And experimenting is so huge because that that's like even with thermostat um, and even the things you think that don't work for you, it's interesting to keep thinking about them, um, which is why this job's kind of horrible because you're basically working 24 hours a day, which is a whole separate conversation, but uh, is to keep thinking about these things because like with, with thermostat, um, so we've done all this content marketing. We've done it where I'm writing about stuff. We've done it. This is not now on HelpSpot and Snappy, mm-hmm. uh, where I paid somebody to write articles. I paid another organization to write articles. Like, and most of that stuff just did, it just wasn't good enough. Is the reality right? It just wasn't good enough. And uh, but meanwhile, in the very beginning of HelpSpot, content marketing before that was even called that was kind of how we got started because it was just me talking about what the business is and how I'm building it and other people who are interested kind of helped amplify that message a little bit and it was personal and that worked. So, uh, it's like at different phases, different things will work. And like one of the things I'm doing with thermostat that is working and I've only done two of these so far. So it's, it's very early, but I said, you know what I'm going to do with the thermostat mailing list is I'm just going to treat it like my personal list. Like it's just going to be me talking to the people who have signed up to hear more about thermostat for when it's launched. Yeah. And I'm just going to tell them, here's some stuff about MPS that's like been on my mind. Here's like a development update. It's written in my voice as me. It's not on a blog. It's not anywhere. Occasionally I might take a piece out and put it up on the website or something. If it's like, if it works that way, Yeah. Uh, mostly for SEO wise, honestly. Yeah. But, uh, but Otherwise, like, I'm not gonna just going to take the whole newsletter and put it up there. I'm not going to write a whole thing and be like, no, this is a blog post that I'm also sending to the newsletter. No, this is me writing it as me to the newsletter. Like I'm writing a personal email to everybody. Mm-hmm. And that actually so far has worked great. Like people are responding back and people have linked to it from that. So that, you know, adding that personal sort of touch to it and it's something at the beginning and people are interested and like that's worked. So I'm going to keep doing that for, you know, a little while and see how that goes. But um, but yeah, so I could have just abandoned the content stuff completely and say, yeah, this is just a list for when we launch and I'll let you know. Uh, but I said, no, let me try this and it kind of worked. So, you know, it's like, you've got to be revisiting these things and revisit them in different contexts and having these different experiments, like this app itself being kind of an experiment where we can try free. I could try stuff like emailing the list as just me, the guy creating it instead of, you know, president of the software of the help desk you use, which is kind of a whole different vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we could just try different things there and see what works. Yeah. So how do you, and maybe we'll end with this, um, if, we're, if we're thinking about someone out there that's, you know, thinking about building software, and maybe even more generally, yeah. like, do you think everyone should be building software? Do you think- yeah, right. I don't know. I, definitely everyone should not be building software. But I think if you want to build software, then you should build software is my advice on that. Uh, the other thing would be one thing that people have totally dismissed at this point, and I think is a mistake, is SEO. 
So definitely think people should be thinking about SEO and not just in the, I mean, that's, it kind of gets mixed up with the content because it's like, well, we'll just make a bunch of articles and that'll be our SEO. Mm -hmm. But you're much better off having like one or two pages that you really deeply think about the SEO and work on that versus like a million long tail pages that you're, yeah, you produced a bunch of stuff, but nobody's linking to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's all irrelevant. Um, and cause Google is going to push that stuff way down, but that's, I mean, SEO is still our number one marketing source on help spot. And that's a, that's an incredibly competitive SEO market with big public companies that we compete against and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as easy as it used to be, but at the same time, in some of these, you know, less established areas. Like you, you could rank number one still for a lot of useful terms and there's still nothing better. All the stuff we talk about podcasts and articles and eBooks and building an audience, all stuff. There's still nothing as good as somebody sitting at their computer typing in the exact thing you do and then finding you. Yeah. That is the best because they are just, they're right there. They want to buy it right now. And then they find you. Yeah. And there's nothing better than that. Like a podcast never going to be better than that. Some article they read on Medium is not going to be better than that. Nothing is as good as they're in Google in the mindset of our customer service sucks. I need some new help desk software to organize things. And bam, they hit help spot. Like that's the best. That's that's optimal. Mm -hmm. So I think people get rid of that for these newer things. And the newer things are good. Like, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all these things are important nowadays. But I would not abandon SEO and I think SEO is probably still number one because the other thing is you can, you can kind of, um, organize it more as a bootstrapper. If you're a small one person or a few people, like it's a manageable thing that you can work on over a long time. That's, um, doesn't require necessarily every week attention, but you're still making progress. Whereas like the content, like if you're going to write a big blog and compete on content marketing, like you're going to have to write articles every week or, or more often than that, uh, yeah. potentially, um, or you're going to have to write huge monster articles. Like here's my once a month, 20,000 words on whatever, whatever you're going to be working on that all the time. And the SEO can be more of a thing where, yeah, I, I do a push and then I don't even think about it for six months. And I do a push and I mean, early on, you might not be able to go six months, but it fits into the schedule better and it works really well. So I think that I never hear anybody talk about SEO on any of these kind of bootstrapper-ish podcasts and things these days and or on Twitter or anything. And I think that's unfortunate because the SEO is still a useful channel. Yeah, that's a that's a great takeaway. And I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, actually. This last six months, I've been thinking – because that was one of my blind spots was just focused on so much on content marketing and then thinking about like searching with intent – is such like you said is <laughs> I mean it's the golden goose it's, it's going to be hard to win I, I mean it's going to be hard to compete against that like there that's at the end of the day when someone has um a need and they're you know let whatever it is they get angry at the, your competitor and they're they're going to go search for right. <laughs> the same thing again <laughs> exactly and, uh yeah it's really hard to kind of replace that Yep. Cool, man. Well, this has been awesome. We're going to have to do it yeah. again sometime. Uh, people can find HelpSpot at HelpSpot.com. Can they find Thermostat right now? Yep, Thermostat.io. And uh, it's got you know some information, landing page, all that kind of stuff. So we'll be launching that 
next hopefully month or so. Sweet. And I highly recommend you fi- you follow Ian on Twitter. Ian Landsman is his Twitter handle. Yep. Unless you don't want he I mean like sometimes Ian goes against the grain. So if you want uh, <laughs> if you want soft Twitter, go somewhere else. But yeah. if you if you want to be angry every once in a while <laughs> in a, in a good way, hopefully uh, in a good way, then uh, then follow Ian. But yeah, All right, thanks for having me on, man. It's great. Yeah, great to have you, man. Well, there you go. Big, long conversation with Ian. I was thinking about splitting this up into two parts, and I thought, nah, I'll just give you the whole thing all at once. Let me know on Twitter if you like this. I'm the letter M, letter I, Justin, M-I, Justin. If you are building a solopreneur business, check out my other show, megamaker.co. And uh, yeah, that's it. I'll see you next time I release an episode. Stay subscribed. (laughs) I've got some good stuff coming. Okay, talk to you later. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.